Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Uh, if you're new with us, we actually do a Q&A at the end of our time together, not because the answers are great, but, but the questions always are. And um, so the text line is there if you're an introvert, if you're an extrovert, there will be microphones kind of roaming throughout the room, but we just, we just think it's a beautiful thing that we wrestle with the text together. And the text we're going to be wrestling with today is um, we're going to start a new series on one verse of the Bible. We've been doing these massive chunks. We did Revelation and Mark. And so we just want to slow down and go like, like word by word through one verse. And we wanted to do the verse that everyone knows, supposedly, um, John 3.16, to kind of show that really the worst posture Christians can have towards the text and towards God's is to think we've got it all figured out already. So many of us, this was one of the first verses I ever learned. And so I sit and I think, oh yeah, I got this. And if, you know, we just want to make the Bible weird again for those of us who think we've got it. And so the way we're going to do that is we're just going to literally do 10 weeks through John 3.16. And if you're like, wow, that sounds painful, you have no idea how painful it's going to be. And so, no, I, I, it, the words in John 3.16 take us all over the rest of the text. So we're going to be all over the place. But I wanted to start this morning by reading um, a comment. We, we have these stations around the room where people write down prayer requests. And while we've been doing this for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or so, my, uh, my prayer life has changed. And the way I teach has changed because of what it is that you guys write in and um, how honest you are. And there are some, and usually, usually there are no names attached, so we can never really follow up other than just pray, which obviously we do. Um, but every now and again, one will come in that really sort of speaks. Um, and I just want to read, because I can't ask permission, I just want to read just a little bit. Um, but this individual said, I'm really deconstructing a lot right now. I've been a Christian my whole life. I grew up in the church, and I don't really believe any of this anymore. The only thing stopping me from completely walking away is that I am afraid. I'm afraid to be wrong. And that individual goes on with some really other profound thoughts. But I, I spent this week thinking about, is the goal of God in the world to form a people who are right? Is that God's, is that God's goal in the world? To form a people who are right? Is the, is the, the way I've inherited Christianity, that's been the goal. To have a people who have it nailed down and the right answers and defend those right answers against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And there's a sense in which I was just wondering, I was talking, Susie uh, has a friend who's a therapist, and we were talking about this, and the therapist said, you know, what if you could imagine a scenario where you are unbelievably wrong and yet still loved? Does that make a difference? I was like, huh, that is interesting. Because for me, the whole goal of being saved is being right. But yet, that isn't exactly the emphasis in the scriptures. Certainly, truth plays a part. 
But truth isn't the abstract set of propositions we always think it is. So if, you're, if the individual is here who wrote that in, thank you for being so honest. But I'd love for you to be open to the possibility that rightness and wrongness isn't the primary way we're to evaluate what it means to have a relationship with God. And so there are worse things than being wrong, and there are better things than being right. And I think I'd love to take the next several weeks to flesh that out through one verse. So why not? So here it is, ladies and gentlemen. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so we're just literally going to go phrase by phrase through this verse. So we're going to start with um, the traditional translation, for God so loved the world. We're going to start with for God. Throw the Greek up just to show off. There it is. That's our, that's our text for today. Turn in your Bibles to for God. All right. Now, the Greek word is gar. Gar. And um, it's a pirate word. And gar can either introduce a reason for something, and you could translate it because, or it can introduce new information. If we were doing this right, we would look at the whole context of John, the whole context of John 3, and then the verses that immediately precede this. But what we'd realize is that we're... The, the commentator, we think this isn't actually Jesus talking anymore. We think it's John talking and, and saying something about what Jesus had just said to Nicodemus. And I just want to look at these two words for God. The word God is the word theos. And that little O there is the definite article. So it's a masculine article. It's, a, it's, a, like, it's ha theos, the God. We don't translate the God into English. We just translate God. And the word theos is just a generic Greek word for God. There's nothing special about that word. In fact, here's the uh, lectionary definition of the word theos, God. A god or a goddess, a general name of deities or divinities, a deity or god is a supernatural being who is considered divine or sacred. Okay, does that help us? For God, theos. What's theos mean? Oh, it's just a generic name for God. Okay. It's kind of like the English word God. Would you agree? Like if you ask people, hey, do you believe in God? The next thing you've got to ask is what kind of God do you believe in? Right? Because the word, English word God doesn't tell us anything about the kind of God we're referring to. Same with the Greek word theos. Are you with me so far? Okay, now, there are good reasons we'll talk about why John uses that word to his audience. But I want to get into this topic by just reminding you of the difference between calling someone by their title and calling someone by their name. Right? Usually, if we don't know someone well, we call each other by titles. Right? If you're a student in your college class, your professor shows up. Unless your professor says, please call me something differently, you're using the honorific doctor or professor. Right? If you walk into a physician's office, you're not just throwing out their first name typically, healthily, um, right? You're using the honorific. You use their title. But when you're with people who know you and you are familiar with and intimate with, titles would feel really weird, right? I mean, so if my wife walked around calling me fellow taxpayer or <laughs> hello, American citizen, right? I mean, it'd be like, and if she's mad, this is the worst. She's only used this a couple times. She'd be like, all right, pastor, 
And it's never a compliment that's coming after that. Ironically enough. Right? But she calls me Mike. And then, and then she calls me Mikey, which is funny. Yeah, Mikey. That's right. He likes it. That's an old cereal commercial. Now, and I call her. Her name is Justina, but that's way too many syllables. So we go from Justina to Justy to Jay to JJ to Baby Bear. J is kind of the big one. Just one letter summarizes the whole thing. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm neither affirming nor denying that I have sought. I've thought such thoughts. Um, but, but so, so there are all kinds of titles for God, right? God is a title for God. Theos, a title for God. God Almighty, a title for God. But when Christians talk about God, the generic word God isn't quite capturing who we're talking about. Because God has given us a name, correct? Through which he is to be known. So, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Now, Moses I love Moses because he, he's invited by God to be the redemptive agent through which God will deliver his people, and he'd rather not. Like, I'm good. I don't speak well. I've got some concerns. I love this. One of the questions he has is, okay, God, what is your name? So he says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers, that that's a title, has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Now don't move the slide yet, David. Names in the Bible don't stand for something you call something else. Names in the Bible are really more important than that. So when we name our children in America, usually there's not a big, long, thought-out, prophetic process that forecasts, oh, this, this baby will have a Michael kind of destiny, so we will call him Michael. Right? There was no inherent Mikeness that my, imper- my parents were seeing in me or affirming in me. Right? They just liked Michael. It means one who is like God, which turned out to be appropriate. But, um, <laughs> but you know, there was nothing woman is just shaking her head. She's taking notes and doodling, and she just, at, at that whole thing, she shook her head. She didn't even look up. She just said, yep, and I'm seeing the word L-O-S-E-R written there. Um, totally appropriate. Now, that's one of my titles. Anyway, um, There is a big difference between how the Bible names things and what names are. Names in America, they usually just stand for what we call each other. In the Bible, it stands for your character or your destiny. And what God will do if he changes someone's destiny is he will sometimes change their name, right? So names are big. So God's name doesn't just stand for, hey, like how do I introduce you to my friends? God's name is, who are you? What are you like? Who are you? So that's what Moses is asking. Now, the religious landscape of Egypt, as you would imagine, was filled with all sorts of pretender gods and goddesses that all had names, and their names tell you a bit about how they work. So it's not surprising Moses would say, who are you, what is your name? But then notice the name that God gives. Next slide. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, this is a verb. 
He doesn't give a name, he gives a verb. And the verb means to exist. Literally, the name is I exist. In contrast to all the pretender gods, I actually am. I mean, I think that is the most brilliant first name in the history of anything, right? Hey, God, hey, God, who are you? I'm real. I exist. I am. Which is why when Jesus marches around in the book of John and says things like, hey, before Abraham was, I am, and the Jews pick up rocks to stone him for blasphemy, like Jesus wasn't being too subtle in that moment. So that's when God refers to himself, he uses the phrase, I am. It's the first person form of this verb, to be. But then God gives the name that Moses and the people are to use. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Next slide. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. Now, that's a different word. And it's the third person form of he is, or of I am, which means he is. All right? So when God refers to himself, I am. When Moses refers to God, he is. Are you with me? That's what the L-O-R-D stands for. The L-O-R-D in all caps, it's used 6,800 times in the Old Testament to refer to a, a set of four Hebrew consonants, yod Hey, vod Hey, which is called the tetragrammaton, the letters. And they didn't have the vowel mark. They don't have vowels in Hebrew. They have vowel markers. And, and we're not quite sure how this was pronounced because they stopped pronouncing it. Our best guess is you'd borrow some of the vowels from Jehovah and you get Yahweh. And so when God refers to God's self, I am, I exist. But the name he gives to Moses, Yahweh, means he is, he exists. Are you with me? So, the th and, and, and what's amazing is the Bible never argues for the existence of God. It just says, in the beginning, God created, right? I mean, God just is. That's why, and, and, and what's interesting is there's, I mean, this is for total Bible nerds, but there's a tensed aspect to he is, meaning he is in the past, he is now, and he is in the future. So, like, you could not have a more all-encompassing picture of what God is like than this. Now, so God is known as Yahweh. And the name, there was a temptation to misuse the name, to attach it to empty things and promises. And so there was a commandment that said, do not misuse the name. And one of the things some of the religious leadership did in Israel later on was to just stop pronouncing the name altogether. And they would substitute names like Adonai or Hashem, which just means the name. Like if you wanted to refer to God, you didn't even say the name, you just called him the name, right? So we're not, we're not super sure how it was pronounced, but there's an interesting connection because Yahweh isn't the only name we're given in the text through which to know Theos, correct? By which to know God. So when we go to Matthew, we meet this fellow Jesus. Mary will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, just to be impressive, in Greek, it's Jesus, all right? And Jesus is the Greek translation of a Hebrew name, Yehoshua, 
which was used before the exile, or Yeshua, which was used ex, uh, after. And it means Yahweh saves. So the angel, when speaking to Mary, wasn't speaking English, correct? So we get Jesus from the Latin translation of the Greek. The Greek name was Jesus, which the angel could have spoken, or Yeshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. And these are the names that were given in the text. Yahweh, the creator God, and his son, Yahshua, Yahweh saves. Are you with me? So there are reasons why John used the generic word theos. Like if I were to say to somebody, hey, do you believe in God? There's a reason why I would use that word. Right? He was writing to Greeks who had no idea who like Yahweh was. So it's appropriate that he would use the word theos. But what's fascinating is the connection then that the New Testament draws between Yahweh and his son, Yahshua. Go to Colossians, if you would, chapter 1. The son is the image of the invisible God. Now, let me ask you a question. Bible nerds unite. Were there images of God allowed in the Old Testament? Could you make an, a graven image? Were you allowed to make any images of God? No. They were forbidden because God was invisible. Deuteronomy says that specifically. Don't make any former image of God because I did not appear to you in any former image. So when Paul comes along, aware of all of that backdrop and said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What he's saying right, is exactly what we would infer, that if you want to know what the invisible God is like, you look at Jesus. That's the only permitted image of God ever allowed. Are you with me so far? And he's not just the image of the invisible God, but he's supreme over everything. That's what firstborn means. It doesn't mean he was born first. It just means he's head over everything. Next. In him, all things were created, Things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. How many things does that leave out? Yeah, nothing. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the, we're not just talking about like, like Jesus being a, a good prophet or moral teacher. Like The New Testament is claiming something far bigger than that. That, that Yahshua is the physical representation of Yahweh in the world. He is before all things. All things in him hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So in everything, he might have supremacy. Colossians 2. Uh, for in Christ, and in Greek it literally says, the fullness of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. How much fullness does that leave out? Zero. Or Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through many prophets, through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And then there's this phrase. And this phrase, oh my goodness, Bible nerds unite the exact representation of his being. Now, the word exact representation is the Greek word character, which literally means character. 
the word is used for an etching that is in, written in stone and doesn't change. It's used to describe a carbon copy of something. And the word being, so, so the word being, ah, oh, I'm sorry, I'm nerding out. Um, the word being is the word hypostasis, which means the very inner essence of God. So the claim here is that Jesus is the exact photocopy of God's inner essence. Are you with me on that? Like, when Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am. And then along comes, I am who saves. As the physical. See, people will always ask, not always, but sometimes they'll ask, hey, so is Jesus the only way to God? And we want to say, no, no, Jesus isn't a way to God. He's not a way. Like, Jesus is Yahweh come to earth. He's God come to us, right? Which is far different than just a way to some abstract deity out there. In, Yah in, in uh, Yahshua, Yahweh becomes concrete. Now, that doesn't mean, and this is the whole thing about the Trinity, we can talk about if you want, but it doesn't mean the Father is the Son or the Son is the Father. They are differentiated. But if you want to know the inner essence of what God, the invisible God, is like, you look at the concrete instance of Jesus of Nazareth to find out the inner essence of what God is like. And as it turns out, God is pretty amazing. Do you agree? Now, back to Theos, John 3.16. For Theos so loved the world. And he's writing to Greeks. They don't know who Yahweh is, so of course it makes sense he would just use a generic word. But is that who John means? No, he means Yahweh and his son, Yahshua. What comes from the study of theos is something called theology. Have you heard that word? That's what the word means, the study of theos, the study of God. And there are a couple of points that follow from this. In the same way it's possible to know someone's title and not know them, is it likewise possible to know theology and not know Yeshua. Of course. We see this all through. I mean, right? The demons have the best theology in the Gospels. So it's possible to know all the theology and not know God's name. And it's also possible to not know much of the theology and still know who God is. Would you agree? Because there, there's this thing that happens, and this happens with me. So I don't know about you guys. But there's this thing that's happened in American Christianity where we've made this primarily about believing certain sets of ideas. And hallelujah, when you believe reality, it really helps you live well. No question. So we're fans of this. But it becomes a substitute for so many of us from actually knowing God himself. And one of the symptoms, one of the ways you can tell if you're missing God for the sake of just knowing the information about him is when you cease being curious about what God is like in the world. Like, how many of us have heard John 3.16? All of us. How many of us thought, I think I know that verse? All of us. And that is the biggest trap when it comes to following Yahweh and his son Yahshua. Is thinking that somehow we can capture this person in a series of statements that we're supposed to agree with. And hallelujah, let's agree with the statements. 
But there's another sense in which agreement with the statements doesn't do anything when it comes to the life that our God has invited us into. Correct? See, the longer we follow God, the bigger God should get, not the smaller. And for a lot of us, at least for me, the temptation is to just keep reducing him down into the boxes that make sense. And believe me, I think theology is so important. Bad theology harms people. Absolutely. Good theology doesn't save us, but man, it liberates. Absolutely. So I'm not denigrating that. But what I'm resisting is the temptation in my heart to look at the vast enterprise of Yahweh's work in the world and say, okay, here are 11 statements that summarize that. And if you agree with that, you're in. And if you don't, you're not. I think that is a tragic, tragic thing that has happened to us. And as a result of us boiling it down, we simply cease being curious. Oh yeah, I've heard that before. Prayer, yeah, I got that. You're like, what? So part of what we do here is to try to provoke us into the Bible being weird again. Like, well, I'm not sure what that means. I don't know. That's a great posture to worship from. If our God fits squarely into our Greek-oriented imaginations, then we are suffering from a God that is far too small. Now, all of this we're going to agree with, right? Because I'm even presenting this as theology, right? I mean, we can't escape it. But there's a, just a couple of things I want us to know. Theos, generic for God, great. When you ask people, do you believe in God? They'll give you all sorts of answers. What kind of God do you believe in? all sorts of answers. When you ask Christians what kind of God they believe in, they'll give you all sorts of answers. But what's the one answer they're supposed to give you? What is God like? Who is the exact representation of his being? Jesus of Nazareth. See, a lot of us suffer from composite images of God from bad teachers and harmful theologies and self-help and who else, you know, who knows where else. It's kind of this composite view. And as a result, we really struggle with the idea of God being good or God forgiving us or whatever. And there's another sense in which we're invited into a posture that is perpetually curious but centered almost entirely on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And from Jesus, then, we go and explore the rest of the scripture. Are you with me on this? And I, I've to, I think I've told this story before. I don't remember if it's been in this context but I was, I'm somebody who loves theology, and I love ideas. And, um, and I had a vision of God uh, from, cobbled together from all sorts of parts of my childhood that is like a, a, a country sheriff who's kind of sitting there on a, on a country road. The road is straight for miles. The speed limit should be 80 miles an hour, but it's 35. And the sheriff is just sitting there waiting, right? And that exactly expresses what I think God is like. He's given these human bodies and there are all these desires and there's all this fuel and energy and stuff in the world and he's just sitting there on the side of the road waiting for me to screw up. So I turn out to be a perpetual disappointment. I always have to lead with confession when I pray. And it wasn't until I was at a conference with my sweet, not yet wife, but getting there. And um, we were ministering to some college kids. And a chaplain got up 
and said, um, he was a chaplain for a Christian college, and so he was meeting with some guys that wanted to be discipled by him. And um, so he was a little hard on him. He said, okay, you want to be discipled and learn the way of Jesus? Fantastic. How many of you guys have ever just read one of the gospel writings because you're compelled by Jesus and not for class? Because this is a Christian college. And they were so quiet. And the whole audience of 1,100 college kids and myself were so quiet. I'd never done that. And then he did this. And I mean, this changed my life. This was the moment. If somebody says, hey, when did you come to Jesus? This was the moment. Sure, I prayed to avoid hell lots of times. But I didn't come to Jesus then. I came to, I came to a false idea of salvation then. I didn't come to Jesus. So he holds up this. He just says this. So let me get this straight, guys. You've given your life to Jesus, you trust Jesus, you worship Jesus, you give to Jesus, serve Jesus, all, everything's all about Jesus, and you've never taken the time to look at the only four authoritative accounts of his life. What? Show all sides. Were you trying to see it or were you falling asleep? Because it's okay, the answer is both. Just want to make sure you got it. And so he's sitting there, and, he's, and he, he goes on to just make this really no-duh point, but it was new to me. It was like, wow, you can miss Jesus right in the middle of the whole religion that bears his name. And I think we all know this, but we never think we're the ones guilty of it. So one of the reasons why I wanted to engage this text was to remind us, for those of you like me, theology isn't the thing that saves us, and being right isn't the goal of following Christ. And not only that, if we, if we fall too much into the study of theos as an abstract concept, then we become people who cease being curious and full of wonder. And instead we become judgmental and rigid. And there are places, of course, where because the Jesus movement is handed down, there are places, of course, where those, like those channels are fixed. But there's still so much to be wrestled with. What prompts us to study is precisely because we don't know. Right? I mean, when I come across a real weird verse in the Bible, I don't anymore, look at that verse and go, man, that's dumb. I'm out of here. Instead, I go, I must be missing something because that doesn't square with the image of God I get in Jesus. And so I look and I wrestle. And I think that's where God does some of his best stuff in a community when we're still curious and wrestling. Are you with me? So the whole series is just designed to take words that we think we know and just to make them weird again. And to go, yeah, 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 we want to be people who even though we think we got it, realize we don't. All right, anything you want to talk about out of all of that? Any questions you have, any texts you sent in, you are welcome to do that. Yes, sir. Oh, no, go ahead. Can you wait until we get you just because there's an online crew? So I might have missed it at the beginning, but uh, you started off and you talked about God's name, right? Yes. So this is, uh, is this John? 
is this book of John for God? Yes. Okay, so John yep. three sixteen, right? For yep. God so loved the world. So yeah. did you mention that there is a significance of why he used the word God instead of Yahweh? Yes. Or, okay, can you remind me what that was? Because I missed it. Oh, no, this is such a question. Thank you. You probably didn't miss it. I'm just fuzzy today in my brain. Um, no, the idea is he was writing to Greek people who have no idea who Yahweh was. That would have just sounded like a tribal God, right? That would have just said, oh yeah, that's the God of the Jews, not the supreme deity over everything. So it was very deliberate why he did that. I want to use that though, that generic word to go after the idea that for many of us, God just remains this generic deity. But what Jesus, the claim in the New Testament is by how Jesus lived and how he taught, he redefines what God is in the world. So that I'm not thinking about God separately from the character of Jesus, right? When I see the character of Jesus, that's what the invisible God is like. And so for me, one of the ways I try to escape some of the real toxic stuff that's out there is my Bible reading plan is really simple. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John repeat over and over and over again. Why? Because number one, that's, like, there are other pictures of God all over the text, and they're all true, but they're all not full, right? So you get an angry, like, violent Deuteronomy image, like, go strike them all dead. And so I'm like, okay, well, that seems really different from Jesus on a cross. And so I'm wrestling with, okay, I don't want to take the route that just says, well, that didn't happen, they were making it up, and I don't want to take the route that says, ah, that's just what the Israelites thought was happening. I want to say, no, no, there is a legitimate picture of God that is holy and full of justice. But that isn't the full picture. Only Jesus is the full picture. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, John, is he the only one that has that, you know, verse or, you know, any version of that? I, mean, can't, I don't remember it in any of in, the in, Gospels. In a, that's probably the clearest, the clearest summary outside of the words of Jesus yeah. about the purposes in the, of God in the world, yeah. So, for instance, if it was in Mark, you know, it, 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 if it was out, it would have been probably addressed differently, but it Absolutely. come up specifically. Now, these are such good questions because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar, right? They share almost a core of material that they're extemporating upon. But then John, man, that is so different. And so we think John's engaging with a, a philosophical tradition, um, uh, from uh, Jewish contemporaries. And he's arguing for the Messiah in a very uh, philosophical kind of way that's, that feels more ethereal than the other synoptics. Great, great question, man. Thank you. Anything else you guys want to talk about? You don't have to. Way in the back. Hi. Thanks for waiting. Okay. Um, this is probably going to be long and rambly. Um, but I, I You wanna... just listened to long and rambly, so I think we're all, <laughs> um, we're all good. No, I'm actually really the queen of it, but um, <laughs> I wanted to thank you for what was shared. I was walking in just as you were reading the, the thing about deconstruction, um, yeah. and that's really where I've been for the past three years. It's kind of what led me to this church, um, wrestling with what I still believe and what I've also known to be true in my life and my relationship with God. Um, but I don't know what you know or what you know everyone thinks about the Enneagram in here, but I'm definitely a one, which is having to be right, right, the perfectionist. And so yeah. a lot of my deconstruction journey has been the things that I've experienced with God myself personally, and then all of the other stuff that I'm like, I don't understand how this works anymore. 
Um, and I liked what you said about it not having to be about being right, but that's something I've wrestled with for a long time, wanting mm. to be right. Mm. Um, you know, I was always afraid to ask the question about other religions when I was a kid. Um, like, everybody else thinks they're right too, so what makes me so different? Oh. Um, I hated voicing that because I thought that was me doubting my faith, which was also very important to me. So I'm in this yeah. place of not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I was hoping you might be able to provide a little insight on how do we kind of escape that, that feeling of needing to be right? Because oh, I've been wrestling with it for so three good. years. So good. Well, if you figure it out, I'm, I mean, I, let's write a book together or something. Um, I, but something you just said really struck me. How I understood Christianity is what is the reward of being right? Heaven. And what's the punishment for being wrong? So with those stakes, how could anyone ever like have permission to doubt? Or, or, right? I mean, good Lord, that's how the whole thing was presented. Now, over the course of the last several years, we've tried to sort of let the text present a different picture that says that isn't the way salvation is presented uh, in the Bible. Uh, and and if, if that raises red flags for you, fantastic, right? Because most of us understood the whole point of salvation is getting us to heaven. So first of all, I just really validate where you're at. And, and the, the, the fear that I heard in the question was, man, I don't want to burn in hell if I'm wrong. And there, there are so many things we could say, and I, I won't do well answering this because we could spend, we could spend hours, right? But right and wrong are, in, in our tradition, are intellectual things. Here's a statement, and if that statement is true and I believe it, I am right. And if this statement is false and I believe it, I am wrong. Correct? In the Hebraic tradition, right and wrong are ways of living, not intellectual categories. So, and I, and I think there's something to be said for each, right? I don't think it's completely one or the other. But um, you get somebody on, like the thief of the cro- on the cross who had no beliefs other than, hey, I was mocking this guy for a while, but it seems like there's something going on. Would you please remember me when you get into your kingdom? And she's like, sure. <laughs> right? I mean, the sinful people interrupting is there. I mean, how great was their theology? There, it, there wasn't. And I'm not saying theology is important. It, it massively is. But there seems the goal of God's work in the world is to not produce the people who are right, but to produce the people who are loving and demonstrate their rightness in their loving. So it never says, Paul never says, speak the truth in love. There's no word for speaking in that verse. It's literally the word truthing. So you will know the community is truthing well when it loves. And so that's, that's where I want to go with it to say, listen, we can all pretend to affirm virgin birth and Noah and the flood, but that doesn't get us anywhere with God. God, isn't, God knows if it's pretending or not. He's not interested in the pretending. He's interested in what you really think. And the possibility that Susie's you know, therapist friend represented that it's possible to be wrong and still loved. And then all of a sudden, your quest for the truth isn't driven by fear, but it's rather driven by hope. 
Because we had a great question come in a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sorry I'm giving a rambly answer, but it, you know, you set it up. Um, I'm just, no, I'm just teasing. It wasn't rambly at all. Um, but but somebody, somebody wrote in and said, you know, hey, um, if you took hell away, why would anyone follow Jesus? And, and this speaks to what you're saying, I think. Because let's, let's play that game for just a second. Let's say everyone's going to heaven. Like, some of us may roast a little longer. You know, maybe we need some more purifying. But let's just assume we're all going to heaven. Why would you follow Jesus even in that scenario? If you didn't need him for salvation from hell, what use is Jesus? And the fact that most Christians don't have an answer to that shows how far off we've become. I follow, and this is just me, because I had to graduate from the I'm terrified to, oh, I actually think, and I really believe this, that, that the way of Jesus is the best way to be human. That the human soul is meant to run on forgiveness and reconciliation and confession and lament and the full range of emotions, even in its fallenness. Right? And that what Jesus is doing is he comes as the image of God to restore what it means for us to be images of God. And that's super imperfect, but he's created new creation space called the church where the people of God begin to work that out, totally hammering into each other as they try to figure it out. But nevertheless, the goal isn't to sit there white-knuckling and like, dang, I'm missing out. The goal is to actually believe, no, this is actually the better way. Like, purity, it's actually better than immorality. Like, forgiveness, brutal. But it's actually better than grudge-holding. Right? Peacemaking, actually better than violence. So that, so that we're not trying to arbitrarily force ourselves into some sort of predetermined holiness code of an arbitrary and picky God, but rather we're trying to re-engage what it means to be human, and being religious is a part of that, but not the only part of that. So, yeah, we're back. I so, got one over here. Oh, okay. Don't, don't ignore this Can side of the room. Real quick? Y- yes. <laughs> and for when we fail to do those things, yes. he has and never will fail for us. Yes. Well, hello, sir. Thank you for sitting in that section. Yeah, um, yeah I'll represent this section. Yeah, um, yeah so I have a, a, a comment and about five questions in one. So just want to yes, show you I again. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Um, All right. That's good. Um, so right. Last one. In order to better understand, I know we can't fully understand, but in, to, to better understand God, we under, need to understand the Trinity, both the separateness and the togetherness of the totally. Trinity. Totally. So... And, and it feels like, I don't know if this is everybody's experience in the room, it feels like in my Christian walk that this understanding of the Spirit or the teaching of the Spirit in the church has been disproportionate to understanding God the Father and God the Son, at least for me. Less or more? Less. Okay. So in some, in some it's, traditions, it's far more. Yeah, okay, but maybe yeah, in, so in my, my tradition, it's far yeah, less. So it's yep. less than 33% for me. Yeah, right? for sure, for sure. And so... I guess my question is, in, in relation to what we were talking about today, and this is the part that I wrote down, Yeah. if Jesus is the representative image of God on earth, what does the Spirit represent? Oh. 
And was the spirit ever represented before the ascension? Oh. And was the spirit sort of just waiting to assume his role? Like, where Come is the spirit? On. I'm sure the spirit, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think of the spirit in the Old Testament. Oh. Uh, so help me out. Oh. Okay. Help us out over in this section. No, first of all, what a great set of questions. Good Lord. And you're so right. And, and, I, and I see that in my teaching. Like, if I go back and look at how much we talked about Jesus, right? We have not talked much about the Spirit in the last two years. Absolutely. And, um, and part of that is my hang-up from a childhood that was spent being terrified of charismatic people. You know what I mean? Like, they called an elder meeting. when some, I'm not kidding. When someone raised their hands in a worship song, an elder meeting. So I'm twitchy. If I'm raising hands, guys, it's a big deal. That's all I'm going to say. Now, um, but let's get, let's get to some of your questions. Uh, the, 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 the Spirit is all over the Old Testament. Absolutely. And, and, and we'll be in Genesis in the fall. Yes, and, and we'll spend more time there. But, okay, who is, it, who is it the Spirit of? So Paul calls the Spirit the Spirit of Christ. So if Jesus is the historical instance, the concrete, tangible person in a particular body, particular place, particular time, the spirit of Jesus is the universalization of that presence, accessible to all people, everywhere, at all time. So we're not left, this is where the self-improvement gospel gets it wrong, we're not left trying to be better, we're left in partnership with Jesus through his spirit. So, so the idea is that God, God is the character manifested in Jesus. The character manifested in Jesus is with us through the, the pouring out of the Spirit. Does that make sense? And, and, and it's, Susie, did you want to add something? Do it. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the corner of my eye. He, represent, he represents God's empowerment in the world. He represents the way God moves and functions in the world through people. If, if we were given the Spirit of Christ, every single one of us, it's what he does and how he does his work through us. And, and, and yes and amen, and there's so many more questions. So we should do, Susie, let, next, next year let's do a little, little home cooking on the Trinity. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> See? All right. I'll raise my hands in worship, though. No, I'm good. I'm good. I just, <laughs> sometimes I've, it's happened. And I, I actually believe all the gifts are for today and all those sorts of things, but it's just... That, that was, that's, that's always been just a hang-up from my earliest days. Anyway, hey, um, guys, you're amazing. And, and just a reminder, as always, we don't all have to agree on this stuff. Absolutely. That's not the goal. But the goal is to form a community at this time, in this place, with these people that seek to represent Jesus well to each other and to the world. And so that's why we gather. It's not just, you know, because we have nothing better to do, Avi. We've got lots of better to do, as my kids would say, Avi. <laughs> but we take the Lord's Supper every week as a tangible way to remind us that this is our new identity. Right? Because I forget. We pray for each other through the cards. It's a way to remind ourselves we're not alone in our suffering. 
right? We sing these songs, not just because they're cute little songs, but because they're allowing us to use our lips for things other than self-glorification or outrage or insult, right? And our imaginations are being recaptured by art and by lyric to be oriented again around the things that are true and good and beautiful. So this time, when we think about the service, we think a, a teaching is only good if it really leads to this part of the service where we're sitting and wrestling together. So let me pray, invite the band up. And then we're just gonna take some, some time just to respond, however that looks like for you. And so Lord Jesus, we're, we're so grateful. I mean, I'm so grateful. It, it has been hard to believe the good news is really this good. And it's really hard to believe sometimes that God, you are this good. And we sing often about the goodness of God and a hallelujah, what a great thing. But to inhabit that reality is a struggle sometimes. And so Lord, would you recapture us again and afresh around the beautiful and compelling image of Jesus. In all of Jesus, not just the parts we like, but in all the complexity and the disruptedness of your entrance into the world that we might be people who sound like him and talk like him and act like him. So we bless you. We welcome. We know you're here. We ask you, God, you would meet with us now. Amen.